Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.21b, Sayings of the Savior, Part 2, The Sermon on the Location Defined by Its Relative Elevation. All of these ought episodes are made to let us build our Pope Color glasses so we can use the same lenses when we look at history together in the main show. If you're lost, start at the beginning. This episode is hitting your feeds because today, June 8th, is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, also known as Corpus Christi. Or at least, it's that in areas where Corpus Christi hasn't been moved to this Sunday. I figure if I get the episode out now, you can observe the feast and listen to the episode on either date, and that's already the logic I quietly adopted for the Ascension, so I might as well be consistent. If you want to know more about Corpus Christi, I've got something for you to look forward to. Not only because, of course, the institution of the Eucharist is one of our upcoming mysteries, but also because I'm planning to offer summaries of the various solemnities on the Cardinal Numbers feed next year, so you'll have a chance to hear a quick history of all the solemnities relatively soon. This episode continues our reflection on the third luminous mystery of the Rosary, namely the Proclamation of the Kingdom, which for our purposes means we're taking a look at the sayings of Jesus, and we're going a bit further along in our investigation of Jesus' words from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we started last episode. And really, Mark is going to be getting short shrift today, because, as those who don't actually need to listen to these episodes but are following along anyways have probably already guessed from the title, our main focus today is going to be the Sermon on the Mount, found only in Matthew, and the Sermon on the Plain, found only in Luke. Sorry, Mark. And I guess the found only in thing should probably be qualified because they are very much related to one another. Of the two, the Sermon on the Mount is certainly the more famous, so we'll take a look at it as our starting point. Even if it weren't, Matthew comes before Luke in the traditional ordering of the Gospels, so there's that. You might have noticed that I tend to follow the traditional ordering when listing the Gospels or when doing synoptic roundups. That traditional order is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in case you hadn't noticed and were now curious. The last part of Matthew chapter 4 and the first part of Matthew chapter 5 sets up the immediate context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's worth noting that the section right before this is Jesus calling his first few disciples, which we'll go into in more detail later, 
but for now, just know we are officially very early in Jesus' public ministry. Gospel of Matthew Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The Greg says... Now, it hardly seems worth interrupting when we're right on the cusp of the actual sermon, but, well, I want you to know what you're in for here. Grab popcorn and a drink, because these next three chapters are going to be about 2,500 words of bangers. I'm going to cut in and annotate periodically, because that's what I do in these episodes. If that thought annoys you, you can skip the rest of this episode and listen to the supplemental episode that's also being released today, which will present both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain in all their glory, uninterrupted. Without further ado, let's let the Son of Man talk. Gospel of Matthew Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Greg says... This section, called the Beatitudes, Beata being Latin for blessed or happy, is right near the core of Christian morality. Core enough that it inspired the Blessed are the Cheesemakers bit from the life of Brian. It probably helps that this is the opening salvo in, and I cannot stress this enough, the most famous sermon in Christianity, which itself is probably helped by its status as being near the beginning of the first gospel. Anyone who manages to get ten minutes into the gospels reaches this point. Of course, that's not to downplay the overall significance of the Beatitudes as hope for the hopeless and the downtrodden. Gospel of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds 
and glorify your Father in heaven. The Greg says, This passage was the theme for World Youth Day 2002, way back when I was a youth myself and got to see Pope John Paul II pass by a few yards away. It's honestly hard to think of anything else when I come across this passage, which is either a testament to the poignancy of that experience for me, or it shows how relatively uninteresting the passage is to me in its own right. Quite possibly a mix of the two. Of course, I really shouldn't knock it too much, because this lamp analogy is, by most accounts, our first example of a parable. The Oxford English Dictionary's online edition defines a parable as, quote, a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson, as told by Jesus in the Gospels, end quote. You know the association is close when you get a shout-out in the definition of the word. Parable is based on the Greek word parabole, a compound word meaning throwing alongside, a word having the basic sense of analogy, and a word that was already around when the synoptic gospel writers picked it up and started applying it to some of Jesus' teachings. Parables are similar to fables, though fables tend to use animal characters, while parables tend to use humans to illustrate the point. Also, despite Oxford's narrow definition, generally the word is not strictly restricted to Jesus' use of them in the synoptics. It's also worth noting, while I'm doing a brief aside on the parables, that I'm saying synoptics for a reason. John has, by most counts, zero parables. Indeed, the Greek word parabole appears a total of 48 times in the synoptics and zero times in John. Interestingly, it isn't exclusively a word from the synoptics because it does pop up twice in Hebrews and, as I mentioned already, it also appears outside the Bible as well. We'll talk more about parables as we go. For now, let's get back to the Gospel of Matthew. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Greg says, So begins a lengthy section where Christ sets the target extremely high. His twin messages can often be summarized as we are called to do the impossible, but that simultaneously the impossible can be made possible for us if we seek God's aid. Listen how he raises various bars for moral action as we go, starting with the prohibition against murder. Gospel of Matthew You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, 
is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. The Greg says, Leaving your gift in front of the altar while you go make amends. Abandoning even church duties in favor of making human connections right. That's a hefty calling. And it's followed, perhaps surprisingly, with what is apparently legal advice, though I think the spiritual overtones typically applied to this next section are rightly placed. Gospel of Matthew Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The Greg says, That last verse is often applied to purgatory, which we'll get into in depth in time. And for those thinking they're being especially clever, no, I looked it up, and the adversary here is not Hashatan, a.k.a. Satan, or at least it's not the same word. For those wondering what I'm referring to, the reason one might suppose a connection is because the adversary is a euphemism for Satan elsewhere in the Bible, especially in the book of Job, if you can remember back that far. It is from Ha-Satan, meaning the adversary, that we get the word Satan. Up next, there's more amplification, this time of the prohibition against adultery. Here, Jesus is far from any cuddlier stereotypes. Gospel of Matthew You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The Greg says, Various modern commentators tend to discount the possibility Jesus is being serious here. I don't see any reason not to take him at his word. Eyes to yourself, folks. Next, divorce gets the same treatment, though with one exception, and then oaths as well. Gospel of Matthew It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you could not make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one, 
the Greg says. This next bit is familiar all around. From the eye for an eye of the Code of Hammurabi to, well, I guess with my established parameters, I'm technically assuming you actually haven't heard the phrase, turn the other cheek. Whether you have or you haven't, this is where that comes from, and the context explains the phrase pretty well. Gospel of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greg says, Oof! We'll be revisiting that last bit later on. In fact, let's go ahead and revisit it again, right now, for emphasis. Gospel of Matthew Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greg says... Okay, boldly on to the next chapter, Matthew 6, as the sermon continues with advice on how to go about being perfect. Gospel of Matthew Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The Greg says, I live in the United States, where there's a fair number of fundamentalist Protestants who like to condemn Catholics for such babbling especially when it comes to the Rosary. Given that this tour of the Gospels is themed around the Rosary, well, that should give a sense of how warranted I find that criticism. I'm more inclined, in my edgier moments, 
to claim that the Gospels were written by a bunch of Catholics, while Baptists can only jokingly claim the other John. Denominational quarrels can be set aside for this next prayer that pretty much every Christian can agree on. Gospel of Matthew This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Greg says... Okay, there's actually still some disagreement on whether to say thy instead of your to show hyperformalism, because people like to be extra formal with prayers, and nothing says formal like fossilized 16th century grammar. There's also a discussion on whether Jesus would have basically used Abba, the Aramaic word for daddy here, due to a passage in Romans where that word crops up in relation to God the Father. I've heard it taken for granted that that would definitely be the word, and it's definitely how you say daddy rather than father, and I've also seen pushback on all that. From what I can tell, the division in opinion is more centered around what folks want to be the case. Until an Aramaic version of Matthew appears, and the existence of an early Hebrew-slash-Aramaic Matthew that predates the Greek version was once a popular theory but has since become less academically favored. Anyways, unless and until such a thing pops up, we don't have Jesus' original words, so we can't be sure what the word would have been here. But as near as I can tell, pater, that the Greek has, is one of the more formal options, and I'm not about to accuse St. Matthew of translating Jesus' words poorly. So, as popular as the Abba theory is, and it is one of the more popular canned homilies around, I'd say apply it to the Our Father with caution. That, and really, I'm sorry, but calling it the Our Daddy just feels cringe. Okay, enough with that tangent. Unlike me, Jesus didn't interrupt the sermon with linguistic quibbles. Instead, he went right on emphasizing forgiveness and discreet private righteousness. Gospel of Matthew For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If, then, the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Greg says... So, Jesus does not endorse saving for a rainy day. How to earn the heavenly treasures he described is a topic he revisits at various points. I'll point them out as we go, but it basically shakes out to help those in need, those who cannot repay you. And as you are doing so, well, Jesus has additional advice that your financial planner is going to hate. Gospel of Matthew Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or, What shall we drink? Or, what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Greg says, My translation isn't landing with quite the same oomph here, because it's gone in a more general flowers direction, but consider the lilies of the field, from the King James Version and related translations, is something of an English language proverb. I also tried to pin down why verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, etc., felt so familiar, and it clicked when I realized it's a fairly popular hymn, at least as far as hymns written in 1971 go. I refer you to episode zero for my general stance on boomer aesthetics. Of course, Jesus must have been listening as I wrote that last bit, because his next message is a direct rebuke to me personally. As we enter chapter 7. Gospel of Matthew. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The Greg says, I'm often citing this section, though as we just saw, I also often fail to practice what I preach. The next verse I am not so naturally inclined to consider, which is why it's all the more important to call it out here. 
Gospel of Matthew. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The Greg says, In the end, I like to have hope for everyone. But if I get any negative reviews, I can just cite this verse, right? Maybe not. In the end, use your resources wisely, which is an odd way of capping off the section hated by financial advisors. Jesus was a fan of apparent contradictions, which has historically definitely helped enable a variety of interpretations of just about everything within Christianity. Anyways, that downer of a passage is, in a similar sort of near-contradiction, followed by words that almost read like an ancient equivalent of AI-generated motivational poster captions. Gospel of Matthew Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. The Greg says, Here, buried in this sermon, that also includes the Our Father and the Beatitudes, is the golden rule in all its glory. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We had a similar but not exactly the same formulation when we were talking about the Great Commandment and the second which is like it, in our first episode covering this mystery, and it's worth noting that this isn't something Christ is coming up with out of whole cloth. There are First Testament precursors here, such as Tobit 4.15, quote, Do to no one what you yourself dislike, end quote, and Sirach 31.15, quote, Recognize that your neighbor feels as you do, and keep in mind your own dislikes. End quote. Now, if you're thinking neither Tobit nor Sirach are actual scripture, I'll remind you to put on your Pope-colored glasses and see that the Deuterocanon is just as much scripture as every other part of the Bible from that Catholic perspective. Outside scripture, precursors for the Golden Rule are simply too numerous to list. Basically, everyone who talks morals has some version of it many predating Christianity by a comfortable margin. Right before Jesus' day, the Jewish scholar and teacher Hillel the Elder was known to say, quote, That which is hateful to you, do not do unto your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. Go and learn. End quote. There's even something of a modern attempt to improve on the Golden Rule in the form of the Platinum Rule. Do unto others, as they would have you do unto them, which is fair enough in terms of business advice. As uncomfortable as I am with the idea of improving on Christ's words, it's not a bad modification by any means. 
Though I think the counter-argument that the recipient's personal preference should already be baked into the application of the golden rule is fair. Next up, we have Jesus coming back to a challenging stance, calling those who would follow him to a difficult discipline. Gospel of Matthew Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. The Greg says, Then things take a darker tone. Gospel of Matthew Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The Greg says, That whole section is a challenge for me, and my desire for a near-universalist perspective runs against Christ's words here. But with God, all things are possible, as Jesus also says, so I cling to hope for others as the surest route to hope for me. The builder analogy goes down as a parable in our main big list of parables. It's actually omitted in favor of the log-slash-spec analogy in our alternative list because there's a ton of different ways to count parables and there's not really a settled approach. For our purposes, we'll be relying on our main list, linked in the show notes, but I'm going to include the alternative list as well to show that there are other interpretations. Some things, like the Good Samaritan, make every list of parables you'll find, but you can find probably a hundred overall that make some but not all lists, and you can definitely find more than a hundred different lists of parables. Chapter 7 finishes with a bit of a mic drop for Jesus. Quote, Gospel of Matthew When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. The Greg says, Now, I could simply let that be the end of this episode. 
but I'd like to get through all of this eventually, so I don't just want to do the minimum necessary. So let's go ahead and look at the Sermon on the Plain, and see what's the same and what's different. And I'll also have that supplemental I mentioned, with uninterrupted versions of both of these sermons for you to enjoy as well. Alright, let's go ahead now and get into the context for the Sermon on the Plain. Quote, Gospel of Luke He went down with them, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. The Greg says... Ah, there's the Beatitudes. Note that in Matthew, it's specifically the poor in spirit that get the kingdom. Whereas in Luke, it's just generally the poor. Luke also has a more personal emphasis. Blessed are you who are poor, rather than a more generic, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew also keeps things spiritual when he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whereas Luke has Jesus much more straightforwardly blessing, You who hunger now. We can likewise match up you who weep now in Luke with Matthew's those who mourn. And there are obvious ties between the conclusion of Luke's Beatitudes Gospel of Luke Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. The Greg says... With that conclusion in Matthew. Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Greg says... Matthew's Beatitudes much like his overall relative elevation-specific sermon, are longer. Luke says nothing about the famous inheriting the earth the meek are supposed to do in Matthew, for example. Luke is also silent on what happens with the merciful, the pure of heart, and the cheesemakers, or uh, peacemakers. Next, uh, Luke goes off in a notably different direction, one that we didn't see in Matthew. This is the plain, after all. Unlike those lofty folks getting the elevated Sermon on the Mount, the plain keeps it level by serving up some woes alongside the Beatitudes. Quote, Gospel of Luke But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. 
Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. The Greg says... Then we jump ahead, past the flavorless salt and the hidden lamp things, though those do make their way into Luke eventually, past the amplifications of old prohibitions, until we get to the one where we're supposed to love our enemies and more. Gospel of Luke. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The Greg says, From turning the other cheek to the golden rule, that is a beast of a paragraph. And then we get something of an explanation for why, and how it all works, cosmically. Gospel of Luke. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The Greg says, That there is another well-worn paragraph with a particularly famous conclusion, one which we also saw in Matthew. Luke does go deeper into how heavenly reward is connected to unpaid good deeds, and mercy being the result of mercy. We then get a brief analogy that Luke explicitly labels a parable, which neither of our lists of parables include, just to give us an example of how fuzzy and inconsistent enumerations of parables can be. In this case, it's probably because it's so short. The parable lists tend to favor including longer ones. For what it's worth, most of this last section followed the gist of Matthew, though not completely verbatim. The next few lines, though, are unique to Luke. Gospel of Luke. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. The Greg says... Next up, we've got an exact duplication of the beginning of Matthew 7, the speck and the log, which you could argue is the actual parable Luke was referring to if we dismiss the last few lines as build-up, 
rather than a short parable and then an aside. But in that case, things are even more odd, because our secondary listing of parables only includes the speck in the log as a parable under Matthew, even though the text is literally the exact same in both Matthew and Luke. Our primary list of parables omits it completely. I'll let you decide which gospel I'm reading from next, as those sections are, like I said, literally the same in Matthew and Luke, so you might as well say Q if you believe in Q. Q Gospel. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The Greg says... The next section of Luke is another close, but not verbatim, repeat of content from Matthew. For comparison, here's Matthew, chapter 7, verses 16 to 20. Gospel of Matthew. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. The Greg says... And here's Luke, chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. Gospel of Luke. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes, or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The Greg says... Now, what if I told you this actually parallels a different passage from Matthew even more closely? Obviously, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain are the main places to look for parallels with each other, but if we only do that, then we miss out on Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 35. Gospel of Matthew. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. The Greg says... The conclusions of the relative elevation named sermons are parallel as well. We'll do Luke first, and then a refresher of Matthew. Gospel of Luke. Why do you call me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me, and hears my words, and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man, building a house, who dug down deep, and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it, because it was well built. But the one who hears my words, and does not put them into practice, is like a man who built a house on the ground, without a foundation. 
The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Gospel of Matthew Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. The Greg says... Well, there we have it. The Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. But wait, there's more. No, not the, uh, not the Sermon on the Ditch or the Sermon on the Plateau, but the bits of those sermons that show up elsewhere, like how we saw that that one bit of the Sermon on the Plain mirrored Matthew 12 more closely than anything in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, remember how I noted that the flavorless salt and hidden lamp analogies from Matthew's sermon aren't in Luke's sermon, but they do make it into Luke's gospel eventually? Well, the salt is in Luke 14, and the hidden lamp shows up in Luke 8, and again in Luke 11. Let's do a quick refresher on Matthew's version, then hear what shows up later on in Luke. First the salt, then the chapter 8 lamp, than the chapter 11 lamp. Gospel of Matthew. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. Gospel of Luke Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Gospel of Luke Chapter 8 no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand, so that those who come in can see the light. Gospel of Luke Chapter 11 No one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. The Greg says, it's sort of a telephone game distortion, isn't it? I think these parallels sound like we're getting reports from two people who are recounting the same speech, but didn't write it down verbatim. And that may be exactly what we're getting here. Or, there are those other passages where things are exactly the same, like the log and the speck that we saw earlier. The relations between the synoptic gospels are complicated, 
No wonder people spend their whole careers studying them. Sometimes it's like multiple copies of the same newspaper clipping. Sometimes it's like accounts from two different newspapers. And sometimes it's some sort of paper mache mix. Now, I don't want my analysis of these sermons to become a multi-parter in itself, so I'm going to fight the urge to point out every other piece of the Sermon of the Mount that shows up elsewhere in Luke. I do want to cover one more, though, since it may be news to you that there's a different version of the Our Father in Luke. A shorter one, missing Thy Will Be Done, but keeping the Daily Bread bit, which I forgot to mention is a bit of a tricky part to translate, because the Greek word used, epiousion, isn't used anywhere else, like at all, to give context. And of course there are Greek speakers around today, but it's not a word that's survived into modern Greek from what I can tell. At one point, folks thought there was a shopping list with the word on it next to some items, which got everyone excited, and which would seem to fit the daily translation, but it turns out the actual word there was a letter or two different, and was simply the word for oil, which was already known and, I would assume, was on a large number of ancient Greek shopping lists. The term for a one-off word is a hapex legomenon, which is what I thought we were dealing with here, but of course, no, after all, since versions of the Our Father are in both Matthew and Luke, epiousion is actually a dislegomenon, meaning a word that appears only twice, which isn't much better in this case because the overall prayer is basically the same, just a little more stripped down in Luke. We'll do the Matthew version first as a refresher to start. Gospel of Matthew. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Gospel of Luke Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. The Greg says, that's enough for our discussion of stuff from the Sermon on the Mount found in Luke. Various parts of it also appear in Mark, including its own reference to the Lord's Prayer, quote, Gospel of Mark. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins, too. The Greg says, Mark also has the flavorless salt and the hidden lamp. Overall, it has less of the content of the Sermon on the Mount than Luke, but more of it than John, which, as noted before, has nothing of it. Okay, I think we'll leave it at that. As a reminder, for completion's sake, all the quotes of Jesus that I skipped over here, including parallel passages that are broadly similar but slightly different, will be rounded up and presented in a supplemental episode at some point. There's also that supplemental coming out alongside this episode, where I read through the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain uninterrupted and without commentary, if that's of interest to you. In our next episode, coming next Friday as it happens, for the Feast of the Sacred Heart, 
We'll continue our Sayings of the Savior series with the parables of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew. After that, we'll take a look at the parables of Jesus not found in the Gospel of Matthew on the 24th, the Feast of St. John the Baptist. And, well, at this point, you know what's coming on June 29th, the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul. Here's a public domain recording of the call of a North American cardinal as a subtle nod. Today, I want to give special thanks to my vocal talent, Sean and Walter, who have been getting a workout lately. It's amazing how consistent they sound every time they repeat their lines. Thank you as well for listening. Be sure to tell your friends, and God bless you all.